idea. There is a jingle for pretty much everything in Japan, from electronic stores to giant discount stores and curry brands. I have hundreds of jingles living rent free in my head. They're just so catchy and impossible to escape. Sometimes I'll hear over a dozen a day just riding the train because every station in Tokyo has its own special jingle. We live in a nation that loves mascots and jingles. So when we applied at Sakura Sachiko Detective School and actually got in, we shouldn't have been surprised, per se, that they sent us a CD of their jingle along with other introductory materials. But I was surprised, delightfully so. It also had the lyrics written out. And here's the best part. We found out that the jingle is on karaoke. And there's a music video for it. The lead is Detective Sakura Sachiko, a glamorous middle-aged lady in a sequined hot pink jacket. She's dancing one moment, then lurking behind an unsuspecting cheating couple in the next. This is one of those moments when a podcast can't quite capture the campy magic. Infidelity. Tailing. Background checks, misconduct, corporate investigation, accidents, surveillance. These are just some of the cases detective agencies get called in for. After we found out Morimoto was on Sugar Daddy sites, we actually made some accounts to try and find him, but we got no bites, so we decided to be a little more proactive about things. What if we learned how to track people from actual pros at detective school? And after hearing the jingle, I was sold. This was the school for us. It was a very rigorous process. I had an image of a detective agency as something very film noir. Smoky rooms, trench coats, gruff, troubled men. But Sakura Sachiko is none of that. It's more like visiting a department store or an advertising agency. Everyone is clean-cut, well-dressed, and polite. And yet, Sakura Sachiko is one of the biggest detective agencies and schools in Japan. They're known for cracking cases that no one else can especially missing persons cases. Getting to detective school was going to require some traveling, all the way to Hokkaido, the northernmost island in Japan. It's mostly rural and is famous for ski resorts, hot springs, lavender fields. There is even one hot spring famous for the gang of 72 monkeys who love to bathe there. But that's not where we're going. We're going to Hokkaido's largest city. It's called Sapporo, like the beer, and it's known for being covered in snow six months out of the year. None of us had ever been to Hokkaido before. And by us, I mean myself, Shoko, and Tisanka, our producer. Oh, cool. Does that mean I can be a detective? She has a particular goal in mind. I want to be the first foreign detective in Japan. You can't be the first foreign in Japan. No, Tisanka, I'm pretty sure that that's already been taken. Oh, then I can be the first Sri Lankan detective. We should look it up. So we fly up there to Sapporo to learn from the pros, and when we reached Sakura Sachiko headquarters by taxi, one of the PIs greeted us in the lobby. We recognized him, Detective Hanzawa, the guy we met on our first video call about detective school. Detective Hanzawa is a baby-faced, fit guy in his 40s. He is cheerful and super chatty. He made some small talk with us, like, how was your trip? Did you get enough sleep? Then he went over the itinerary for the day during the elevator ride up to the 12th floor. He brought us into a room with a giant hardwood desk and a black leather seat. 
There were Sakura Sachiko posters all over the walls. Detective Hanzawa told us to take a look around while we waited. The boss will be in with you soon. I guess I was half expecting Sakura Sachiko herself to walk in wearing the sparkly pink suit from the music video. Instead, it was a middle-aged man in a crisp pinstripe suit, Detective Yamada-san. So I had to ask. Sakura Sachiko does not exist. She's just a made-up character for a brand. Sakura Sachiko may not exist, but the detective agency under her name was very real, and the private eyes working there are some of the best in the business, former cops, ex-military, and veteran gumshoes. And now, we were getting ready to follow in their footsteps. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Gone with the Gods, Season 1 of The Evaporated. I'm Jake Adelstein. And I'm Shoko Planbeck. Episode 6, Sakura Sachiko Does Not Exist. I guess I knew deep down that Sakura Sachiko wasn't a real person, but I really wanted her to be. It would have been so cool. The truth, though, this trim, well-dressed guy, Yamada-san, was the wizard behind the curtain. I wanted to make this a company that women would trust. So I decided not to call the company something normal like Yamada Detective Agency, but by a feminine name instead, Sakura Sachiko Detective Agency. I asked a professional announcer who also happened to be an acquaintance of mine to be the character. It's smart marketing. According to Yamada-san, over half of all clients seeking out detective agencies in Japan are women. And Yamada-san understands this. He's been the CEO of Sakura Sachiko for just over 10 years now, which means that he hasn't worked in the field in a while. The last time was back in 2011, in the aftermath of the massive Fukushima earthquake and tsunami. In that disaster, thousands died, and as many as 3,000 people went missing. He's a true veteran of the industry. And he has a surprisingly simple approach to running a detective agency. Every person has the right to become happy. I think detectives have an important role protecting those who come close to losing that right. Detectives can bring back the happiness of clients by getting to the truth. That lyric from the jingle says, whatever the truth is, I just want to know the truth. Yamada-san runs his detective agency on this philosophy, that the job of a detective is to get to the truth. And when it comes to finding missing people, you need to figure out how they disappeared and why. We weren't going to detective school just to find Morimoto. We also wanted to learn more about what type of person goes missing in Japan and the demographics of the modern day evaporated. As it turns out, the largest demographic of missing people are what you might think of as runaways or as we've been talking about them on this show, people who intentionally evaporate. The next big demographic are elderly people with dementia who accidentally go missing. In fact, out of the 80,000 people who were reported missing every year, over 10,000 of them suffer from dementia. In 2021, it was over 17,636 people, nearly a quarter of the total. 
The rarest cases are the ones that involve crime or other nefarious circumstances. All in all, missing persons cases make up about 30 to 40 percent of the work that Sakura Sachiko takes on. It's no coincidence that the Manual of Complete Vanishing and two of the other manuals for evaporating were written by private detectives or at least overseen by private detective agencies. Maybe we should have started here first. We had just enough time before our first lesson to grab canned coffees from the vending machines. Then we were escorted to our classroom, a tiny room with a projector, black swivel chairs, pens with the Sakura Sachiko logo on it. And there was a glass display filled with detective gadgets. I glanced at some of the labels on the gadgets. Wall clock camera, electric calculator recorder, spectrum analyzer, whatever that is, and so on. My favorite were a pair of camera glasses. We were here for three days. And during this time, we had three main instructors, Kudo-san, Anezaki-san, and Hanzawa-san. You've already met Hanzawa-san. He's the jovial guy at the top. Turns out he left the self-defense forces, that's Japan's military, after realizing how much he hated being around flies and insects. It wasn't the risk of being shot. It was the bugs. Then there was Anezaki-san. She usually works in the client intake room, which looks like it's decorated for a tea party. Everything in there is in various shades of pink and cream with lots of lace. Because Anezaki-san is so poised and elegant, she looks right at home in there. She used to be a fashion counselor before becoming a detective. And now she's a counselor for clients at Sakura Sachiko. And last but not least, there's Detective Kudo, our primary lecturer. He's slender, he wears glasses, and he's someone who gets really excited about the nerdy stuff. He's very partial to dense slideshows. Are you okay with kanji? I've heard that you are. We're okay. I can read and write pretty well. Kanji is the hardest of the three writing systems in Japan. Jake and I are pretty comfortable with it, but this was still some pretty advanced stuff. We got our notebooks out. I stole a pen. It was like being back in college. And as we sipped on our vending machine coffees, Detective Kudo set up his PowerPoint presentation. The first slide had the three commandments of detective work. First of all, we teach our budding detectives that you must not investigate by engaging in illegal activity or by breaking the law. And we should never scare people into talking. This could include something like saying we are cops or acting like we're from a violent gang like the Yakuza. The second thing we teach is never use methods that could ruin someone's reputation. Lastly, never behave in ways that would betray the trust of cooperating parties. This is all basically true in journalism, too. Like, don't betray your sources. That should be obvious. Another similarity between journalism and detective work is how you go about investigative interviews, which is basically getting information from people without breaking the law. And unlike Japanese cops, we are not able to arrest someone, lock them up, and interrogate them for 23 days without a lawyer present. What we do is kind of an art form. You need to leverage human psychology to your advantage. One easy way to do this, use a disguise. You need to dress right so that people are more open to talking to you. Kudo-san mentioned a case that required him to talk to some homeless people. So he didn't wear a suit. He wore a scuffed-up blue-collar uniform. But looking trustworthy is only half the battle. You really have to know how to make people talk. Japanese people often use the line, I want to keep this just between you and me, but 
don't tell anyone, but, is a line I've heard a lot in the States too. It's like saying, I wouldn't tell just anyone, but I feel like I can trust you to keep my secret safe. Detectives use this line to get people to open up to them all the time. For example, I would tell Jake a secret, like uh, what my parents are like. And now that I've shared my secret with Jake, he might feel closer to me, and then I'd try to extract stories from him. So that's why sharing secrets is a basic move. This sounds kind of manipulative, but as long as no one gets hurt, it's fair game. And detectives sometimes have to do questionable things to get answers so that they can help people. Take this one case, for example, where Anezaki-san pulled one over on the postal service. She was working on a missing persons case about a woman who ran away from home. The detectives knew that the missing lady loved online shopping. They were able to find out that she recently ordered a package, but they didn't know exactly where it was going. So they struck up a plan. They called the delivery company and claimed it was their package and asked, can we confirm the delivery address? The mail carrier read us half the address and we were about to ask for the street address, but then she got skeptical. She asked us why we didn't know the address we were sending it to. So we made up a story about how we contact the aunt and uncle receiving the package to reconfirm the address ourselves. She understood and hung up the phone. From there, they were able to narrow down the area the missing woman was in. Anizaki-san went there and did a thorough sweep of the whole area until finally, they found the missing lady in a drugstore. Deception is part of the business, and you have to be fast on your feet. It's hard to invent believable little lies, and it can be an uncomfortable thing to do. I think the biggest difference between detectives and the police is this. Detectives work for their clients, and the police work for the law. This is why so many people go to detective agencies when they really want to find someone. Without compelling evidence that the missing person was involved in a criminal case or foul play, police might not have any grounds to investigate the disappearance. Detectives will strongly encourage you to make a missing person's report to the police. But police can only file a report from a close relative or the legal spouse of the missing person. There's another, sneakier reason police sometimes don't take on missing persons cases. Serious cops and detectives at police headquarters, they hate taking on cases they may not be able to solve. This is one reason why missing persons cases are sometimes very misclassified, and other times it's just old-fashioned Japanese misogyny. Detective Kudo had one really disheartening story. That's after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Every missing persons case has its own unique set of challenges. There's one case that really haunts Detective Kudo. This woman went missing in the dead of winter in Sapporo. She left saying that she was going to hang out with an old friend of hers. It was snowing very hard. She got lost and had called her mother. The call got cut off while they were talking. And when her daughter didn't make it home on time, the mother called the police. So the police started to investigate. 
And the first thing they did was look into her call history. And what they found made them decide not to look into the case. The call record showed a gentleman's club that she went to. So the police dismissed the case, saying that she was probably with some guy. Imagine having the value of your life dismissed because, God forbid, you might have gone out with someone. There was no actual sign that he had anything to do with it, but the police refused to consider any other option. In the end, Kudo-san's contract with the client expired, and that was the end of it. We wrote up a report and gave it to the mother. The result was unfound. That was winter. In the spring, the snow melted and a body surfaced out of the mountain of snow. The place where she got lost and called her mother. It was where a lot of plow trucks would come through. This is just what I imagine happened, but I think when the snow plows came, she got scared. So she ran up the snow mound to get away, but got buried underneath it. Apparently, this happens a couple times every year, especially when it snowed a lot. What a thing to imagine. You're walking down the street in the middle of the city and you see an arm peeking out of the snow. Jesus, that's a horrible image. What an awful way to die. It really is. Hard not to wonder if maybe they could have found the woman in time if the police hadn't just dismissed the case. They were so quick to decide that a woman who goes to a gentleman's club wasn't worth being taken seriously. There are tons of cases like this. This particular case had a really tragic ending. But in general, detectives have a pretty good track record for bringing people safely back to their families, especially with runaways. And it turns out that a lot of people run away for pretty relatable reasons. In most cases, people decide to run away because they're having trouble with human relationships. Family issues, work problems. They have the urge to escape from the pain of their current situation and become free. Kudo-san thinks that most of the time, people don't really want to run away. He told us one story about a guy who suddenly disappeared from work and left his wife and kids. But he didn't run far. He was hiding in his car, parked at a mountain about 10 kilometers away from his home. I think this is unique to Japanese people, but he probably thought that he couldn't deal with the shame of, of screwing up at work. He couldn't let his wife and children know about it because he was embarrassed, so... He thought he had no choice but to run away from his family. But he couldn't help but worry about his wife and kids, so he would gaze into his house every night and go back to the mountains before dawn. For people like that, they feel like they have no right to go home on their own. That's such a uniquely Japanese tragedy. Contrary to our expectations, we actually have lots of cases where we found the missing person, and they tell us, thank you for finding me. Generally speaking, people don't truly want to go missing, but they find themselves in a position that they feel like they should disappear. It's pretty heart-wrenching to imagine someone who wants to go home, but feels like they messed up so bad that they can't. People who feel this way need their loved ones to come look for them, to provide reassurance that they're wanted back home. And that they're not just a useless failure or a burden, which is a big fear for people in Japan. In most of the cases we were hearing about, the clients are reunited with their missing loved ones pretty quickly. The detectives get to see their fair share of happy endings. But how do the detectives do it? Where do you even start when you're trying to find a missing person? We tried finding Morimoto. With limited success. Very little success. Our attempt to catfish him on a sugar daddy website... That failed miserably. 
Unsurprisingly, we were coming at it all wrong. You have to be structured and strategic if you're serious about finding someone. Let's go through it from the top. First, you're going to want to build a profile about the person. You can start by asking the client, but you're going to have to dig a little bit. Are there any notes they left behind? Do they keep a journal? Something that will let you into their heads. Detectives often call up old workplaces for two reasons. One, it helps construct a portrait of that person's mental state leading up to the disappearance. Maybe something happened at work, or their performance was declining, or they've been absent a lot more than usual. Two, just knowing what the person did at their old job can be a lead. For example, there's a good chance that their current job and their old job require a similar skill set. So we'll cold call like a hundred of these sorts of companies and see if this person's around. Certain skills and licenses can be a solid lead. For example, if they have a driver's license, which is increasingly uncommon among kids today, they could be in transportation, delivery, driving a taxi. Those jobs tend to be easier to get hired into with no questions asked. If they have a teaching qualification, they could be using that. Cosmetology licenses, boating licenses, any lead helps. You're not going to be surprised that one of the tried and true methods for detectives is to track a digital footprint. It is the 21st century, after all. Oh yeah, their computers are gold mines. There have been a bunch of cases where we found a person's whereabouts just from their email or their Facebook or Instagram. That information is usually stored somewhere on their computer. So that's another angle we can pursue. An unexpectedly common way for a location to get accidentally revealed is if a person uses public Wi-Fi. You know, you go to use the internet at an airport, a coffee shop, a net cafe, and they send you an email with a registration link. And bingo, the detectives can use that to figure out where you are in real time. On the other hand, if the missing person leaves a laptop and phone behind, that can really be a bad sign. People who intend to start over generally need these things. There are other worrisome things to find left behind. ID, money, a change of clothes. It usually means the person doesn't plan on starting a new life, which means detectives have to consider the possibility that the person intends to kill themselves, so they have to work really fast and even start calling up morgues, hospitals, police stations, fire departments. But, assuming they're not a suicide risk, people who disappear and start new lives usually go to places they've been before, places they've been on vacation, their college town, their hometown, or they stay with someone they know. It's human nature to seek out familiar things, even after going through the trouble to disappear. Even missing people tend to do exactly what they were doing before they went missing. Even after they've disappeared, people still tend to spend their time doing whatever it is they enjoyed doing beforehand. So we do a little digging into their hobbies and interests. If they were into books before, they're probably regulars at a bookstore now. Or if they work out, you could go ask around at some gyms. Detectives will come up with some places the person might hang out and do surveillance there. The surveillance tactic is especially relevant if the missing person has a chronic illness or maybe a routine checkup they go to every few months. Sometimes a person will come out of hiding if they become seriously ill and have to go to the hospital. If they're making regular visits, we can try to find a pattern. Are there particular weeks each month? How about days of the week? Then we can stake out the place on those days. They find out the right place and the right time, 
and basically just wait in the parking lot. So, suppose you've found your target alive and well, or just alive and not yet dead because you found them in a hospital. Anyway, congratulations. Here's the fun part. Ultimately, the task at hand is delivering their location back to your client. You don't want to spook your target, so you're going to be a little sneaky. This is why we spent a whole day at detective school learning a very particular set of skills. The art of Biko. Biko, tailing, is a surprisingly major part of the private eye job description. I think I spent about half of my job tailing people. Sometimes I don't tell anyone for a whole month. Ah, but there was one time I tailed someone without sleeping for three days. That was the most significant case of tailing that I had ever done. I, I did that without sleeping. I thought I'd drop dead. If you've successfully identified your target, there's a good chance they'll be traveling around by car, especially in the countryside where there's less public transport. Hans Awasan, our primary instructor for this part of detective school, taught us some of the basics of tailing by car, but there was a slight problem. None of us really drive very well. I didn't get my license until I was 21, and Jake didn't get his until he was 34. We both should have failed the test. So it's probably for the best that we learned how to GPS track a moving vehicle instead. This was much more our speed, and we finally got to use a cool detective gadget. It's about the size of a small candy bar. It has a magnet on the back that you're supposed to use to attach it to the underside of a car. Maybe you've seen something like this in a spy movie. Our instructors took us to a garage to have us try it out. Hans Awasan carefully laid out a flattened piece of cardboard underneath the trunk of one of their vans. This was a nice gesture so that we didn't get motor oil on our shirts. Then he gave us a demonstration. Hanzawa is explaining that you have to get down and feel around the frame of the muffler to find a flat spot to attach the tracker to. The key is to be able to do this quickly. You might only have a small window of time to get the job done. Like while your target runs into the convenience store for some rice balls and potato chips. It goes without saying that you won't have the luxury of folded cardboard to lie upon, so wear a ratty old shirt, I guess. And you have got to be quiet about it. You should only hear a little clink to confirm you've got it attached. Right there? All right. Okay. That making a sound. Here, yep. here. It's right in here. Hi. <laughs> That magnet is really strong. But once it's attached, you can just track where your target goes using your phone. And voila! You know where they are at all times. It's kind of creepy. Please don't try this at home. On the other hand, tailing on foot is a whole other thing. So much easier to get caught. For this, Hans Awasan took us to another location of the school, out in the suburbs where they had a very nice garage. Before you start following your target, you want to take stock of your surroundings. You know, get the lay of the land. Could they slip underground to catch the subway? And where are the bus stops? This is important because if you know the exits and entrances, you can avoid coming face to face with your target. The idea is to stake the opposite side of where you think they'll be, and that way you're ready to head in any direction that they decide to go. Even the best detectives get caught sometimes. Hans Awasan told us that if the person we are tailing confronts us, we need to respond with feigned ignorance. Basically act like we don't know what on earth they're talking about. 
you have to muster up the best acting you've ever done by getting defensive and saying something like, Eh? Ore? Nani no? Which is basically like, huh? What are you talking about? The most common failure in tailing is losing your target. It takes a lot of concentration to follow someone. In our line of work, if you take your eyes off the target for even three seconds, the likelihood of you losing them shoots up. If that does happen, stay calm and get your bearings. It won't do you any good to panic. Next, we're driven to what looks like a sprawling suburban area where the roads are wide, lined with small shops and factories. It kind of reminded me of Oakland or certain parts of Los Angeles. They gave me a camera to use for the test. If I were a real detective, I'd need to take photos of my target when they entered or exited a building so I could show my clients where they've been. Our task was to tail Hans Alasan, take photos of him across town, and keep our communication open with our instructor, Tanaka-san. How'd we do? Well, that's after the break. Back in the day, students at Sakura Sachiko Detective Agency were asked to follow real civilians for this part of the test. But that didn't age so well. So now they have us follow someone from the detective agency. In our case, that was Hanzawa-san, who we started spying on from across a busy highway on the outskirts of Sapporo. My first task was to snap a picture of our target as he came out of the, the building. target is leaving the building, but, but there's a truck right in front of us. It didn't take long for us to finally find our target, but... Don't lose the Coco. We're counting on you. We literally lost our target within the first three seconds. So we just, just disappeared behind a bus. Nope, he's still walking. We followed him by van for a couple blocks until we got close to the train station. Hanzawa-san told us it was time to get out of the car. We are following our target, staying about two meters behind. Shoko and I had to work as a team, but also pretend we didn't know each other. We also had to be on the phone the whole time so that we could communicate, but still act natural. Shoko, we got orders to... Lower the distance, man. We're going to have to walk a little faster. Jeez, this kid is fast. I was focused on getting the distance right, but I also had to basically speed walk to keep up with Hans Awasan's rapid pace. About 10 minutes in, our target went underground into the subway. This was our first time in Sapporo, so everything was unfamiliar. Shoko was zooming, but I ran into my nemesis. Lots of stairs. Stairs everywhere. When you have a crap knee, a staircase is a real obstacle. Hanzawa-san ended up getting on the subway, and Jake just barely made it onto the train. He barged in there with absolutely zero chill. My instinct was to keep my distance and to stay on the same side of the train where our target sat down. That way, I figured I could keep track of him without ever looking at him directly. Jake, on the other hand, plopped down directly across from our target. Hey, I wanted to make sure I didn't lose him. After we got off the train, we followed Hanzawa-san through sprawling underground walkways. There's like a whole city underneath Sapporo. I'm going up the steps. If he doesn't go up the steps, let me know. Okay. Uh, I'll try and catch him. Okay, go, 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 go. I've totally lost him by trying to go ahead. It's on your hands now, Yoshida-san. 
Oh, by the way, everyone is calling me Yoshida-san because that's my surname in Japanese. <laughs> Jake, are you giving up? Jake! I tried giving him directions so that he could find us again. Uh, three coin. There's like a Lawson. There is um, a bunch of clothing shops. Um, I don't think that there was a McDonald's, no. And you might want to hurry a little bit because we're getting outside now. And that's how we lost Jake. But I didn't want to lose Hanzawa-san. I followed him to the Sapporo Clock Tower, which is a famous tourist landmark. He waited there for a while. And finally, another man showed up. I took a bunch of photos of them talking. Mission accomplished. Jake finally caught up. And it was time to get our evaluation from Hanzawa-san. Hi. Jake-san came and sat down directly across. That's not advisable. You're, you're much better off where Yoshida-san was positioned. And you want to stay out of your target's peripheral vision. Ah. I'm saying I was too close to the train. I stuck out. But Shoko, who's sneaky by nature, was off in the corner in the, sort of the perfect position to spy without being noticed. Thank you for that, Jake. You're welcome. It's one of those compliments. It's also an insult. <laughs> it's in, in my profession, that's a total compliment. Hanzawa-san passed me with flying colors. Jake, not so much. <laughs> he said that I really stood out, like an eyesore. <laughs> I don't even know how to translate mechchakchas. Like, 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 fucking terrible. He, he, he totally stood out. Like an anti-ninja. <laughs> I'm a stand-and-fight kind of guy. I'm not really good at blending in. Something I wasn't expecting from our three days at detective school was a full assessment of our strengths and weaknesses. After this many years on the job, you don't get a chance to be evaluated, at least not very often. Or to attend a graduation ceremony. All of our teachers attended, and Yamada-san handed out thick canvas diplomas with our names engraved on them, and it was very nice. We felt accomplished, and we really did learn so much about why people disappear, and how you should go about finding them. And if Tisanka ever does pursue a career as an expat detective, this should get her foot in the door. If everyone at Sakura Sachiko likes her enough, Maybe they'd offer her a job. And there's no better way to cozy up to people than to go out for dinner and drinks. This is called nomination in Japan. It's a combination of the word nomu to drink and communication. They treated us to a feast of some of the best seafood in Hokkaido. We ate salmon, scallops, octopus, shellfish, and all kinds of very tender meats. Plus the finest beers and sake Hokkaido had to offer. Yamada-san in particular was like a different man out of his suit. I had something for Yamada-san too. A nifty Star Wars t-shirt. I noticed back on our first day that he had this tiny little Darth Vader sticker on his laptop case. And I couldn't help but point it out. Thank you very much. Do you happen to like Star Wars? Hmm? Yes, I do. I saw the movie. After dinner, I suggested we go to karaoke 
the national pastime of Japan. I also knew that Shoko really wanted to sing the Sakura Sachiko jingle with everyone. Absolutely. Singing the Sakura Sachiko theme song with Sakura Sachiko detectives would be the most surreal and fun thing ever. So after we warmed up a little bit, Tasanka queued it up. <laughs> we let Anazaki-san have the mic first, and oh my god, she nailed it. As for us. Well, what's your call? Shoko got her karaoke session. Tisanka is one step closer to becoming Japan's first Sri Lankan detective. And we learned a lot of useful investigative skills to track down Morimoto. But any good detective will admit that it's often just luck that makes or breaks a case. That's something they cannot teach you at detective school. Here's one of my favorite stories we heard in Sapporo. Kurosan went to a busy tourist destination to look for a missing person. It was a needle in a haystack situation, but he had a gut feeling that the missing person was there. So he went. And while he was waiting in traffic, a car zoomed by that happened to be the same color and model as the one that he was looking for. So he chased after it, and lo and behold, he found his missing person. Jake, didn't you say that something like this has happened to you as well? Yeah, I find this is definitely true in journalism. Often it's just dumb luck. Like back in 2003, I was looking for the witness to a brutal murder that happened in my own neighborhood with no luck. I decided to take a break from knocking on doors. I went to my favorite bar in Rapongi and told the bartender my tale of woe. It turns out this bartender was the eyewitness I was looking for, and I somehow just stumbled upon him. There have been moments in this podcast where things felt like they magically clicked together too. And meeting Yanagi-san on our final night in Sapporo was one of them. Yanagi-san doesn't work for the Sakura Sachiko Detective Agency. He works out of the Yokohama office for a group affiliated with Sakura Sachiko, Missing Persons Search Japan, or MPS for short. We had no idea about this in advance, but our friends at Sakura Sachiko Detective Agency had thoughtfully arranged an interview with MPS. It was a group that we'd been trying to get in touch with for months. Yanagi-san was the boss. MPS is one of the biggest online bulletin boards for missing people in Japan. It's like the back of a milk carton, but a website. People either post on the website about a missing person they're trying to find, or they call the organization directly for help. Yanagi-san is a tall man in his 70s, with what I immediately recognize as a police detective face. And he's very earnest. If you hang around Japanese cops for 30 years, you start to recognize the look, even their area of expertise— Cops who bust Yakuza look like Yakuza. Homicide cops look like they have indigestion. We were chatting with Yanagi-san about privacy laws in Japan when his phone rang. Oh, sorry. This is a missing person's call. I have to take this. Excuse me. Hello? Yes. This is MPS Japan. He listened carefully to the woman on the other line. She was audibly panicking, but he gently guided her, step by step, on what she should do. 
where to go on the website, who to contact next. Yanagi sounds warm and reassuring. It's clear he does this all the time. There was a phone call about the grandmother that went missing. Sorry about that. He ended the call by snapping shut his flip phone. He's seriously old school. He doesn't even use email, which might explain why it's so hard to reach MPS. Yanagi-san and Jake hit it off immediately. He was super excited to meet Jake. He kept saying how he had read about Jake's background on the internet. They formed a swift bromance. Tisanka and I were clearly the third and fourth wheel, but that's okay. He's an ex-cop, and well, I spent my 20s and 30s in Japan rubbing shoulders with police as a crime reporter. Yes, we are from opposite ends of the crime world, but we share a special understanding. After he retired, he decided to help find missing people. That's his main job now. But because he was a former cop, he was able to talk to us a bit about what it's like to deal with missing persons reports from a cop's perspective. The thing is, when a person who hasn't broken the law runs away or goes missing, the police have no responsibility to look for them. All they have to do is make a missing persons report. And if the person shows up, say to renew their license. The police might take the person's side and say, hey, there's a missing persons report out for you. Would you consider letting your family hear your voice so they know you are okay? And they might let them use their phone. I think that's a very considerate response for a policeman to have. But an indifferent policeman would just look the other way. Yanagi-san falls into the former category. That's why he's continued into this kind of work even after retiring. Being an ex-cop has its benefits too. When you're on the force, you can't really help with cases outside of the scope of your job. It's hard to offer advice or assistance to people without a lot of red tape involved. But as a former cop, you have a lot more leeway. Yanagi-san previously spent a quarter of a century as a police detective in Tochigi Prefecture. He offered to show us around his old beat sometime, including in Nikko City. Nikko is a popular tourist spot a couple hours north of Tokyo, and where, as luck would have it, we had been planning to go for months. If you keep up with the news in Japan, Nikko might sound familiar. That's because it's home to one of the most perplexing and widely covered disappearances in recent memory. On July 29th, 2018, a 36-year-old French tourist named Tiffaine Varone left her hotel at 10 a.m. in Nico and was never seen again. It was like she vanished into thin air and it caused a storm in this sleepy tourist town and all over the world. Nikko is famous for its tranquil scenery and world heritage sites. A foreign tourist going missing there with no explanation is a really big deal. And on the other side of the world, in France, they wanted answers. What happened to Tiffane Veron? Next week on The Evaporated, we're going to meet retired Detective Yanagi in his old stomping grounds, Nico. Join us as we retrace her steps on the fourth anniversary of her vanishing and confront local police to see if they finally admit that it may not have been an accident. The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music Entertainment. It was reported by Jake Adelstein and myself, Shoko Plambeck. 
This episode was also written by me along with Amy Plambeck and Tisanka Siripala. Our producer is Tisanka Siripala. The executive producer is Josh Dean. Story editing by Josh Dean and Amy Plambeck. Fact-checking by Anika Robbins and Himari Iwamoto. Sound design, mix, and engineering by Taka Yasuzawa with assistant engineering by Yurash Jovanovich and Alex Portfelix. Additional reporting and production assistance by Himari Iwamoto. Voice acting on this episode by Kazumi Ogawa, Alex Thomas, Taka Yasuzawa, Jean Koji Yamaguchi, and a special appearance by Jean Ha. Editorial support by Aliyah Papes, Doug Slaywin, and Destiny Dingle. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scheer. If you enjoyed The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It really does help other people find the show. And if you'd like to listen to all nine episodes of Gone with the Gods now, ad-free, subscribe to Sony Music's Binge channel on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.